You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. This is Marketing News Canada, and I'm your host, Jill Saskin-Gales. Today, I'm here with Sarah Norman, who is a data storyteller. She spent six years at Google working with Fortune 50 companies, and she's now a sales and data leader at TikTok. She is also a senior advisor to Wharton. Separately from her tech and data work, Sarah is heavily involved in politics. She was senior advisor to digital on the Kamala Harris 2020 campaign and is often seen on Fox News representing the liberal point of view. Sarah, welcome to Marketing News Canada. Thank you so much for having me. So first I have to ask, you've worked at two of the largest tech companies in data and storytelling, Google and now TikTok. Can you share some of your observations about some similarities or differences between the cultures of these two tech companies? You know, I think the biggest thing that you'll notice from these companies is authenticity. You know, I know when you hear big conglomerates, it's hard to imagine that people can come to work authentically and let what they're posting online is authentic. But I do believe the commonality between the two companies is to show up as you are. You know, we see that across TikTok. I think that's why it's so engaging. Like, I think, like, why are so many parents on TikTok? And I think it's because it's not just, hey, look at these edited photos of my pre-maternity baby shoot. Instead, it's, oh my gosh, I've had to change so many diapers and my kid just spat up. What do I do? I'm exhausted. And I really love that culture. And I think that that is really driving the business for both of those companies. Absolutely. I love TikTok as well, right? For the raw authenticity that perhaps we don't see on some of the other social media apps. Yeah. Thank you. I also love that as coming as you are and not necessarily your best curated self, I think that a lot of people are coming to TikTok and you know Google's YouTube to learn from each other. And it's become really a an educational tool that also is has this sense of camaraderie. So I'm really loving it. And in terms of the culture of the companies, honestly, both companies offer options to work with other really cool companies big and small. And so I'm honest, I feel so lucky to have worked at both of them. It's wonderful. And so now you are a data storyteller. Tell us a bit more about that. How did you get into data storytelling? <laughs> so when I was graduating college a long time ago, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my mom told me, data is the next oil. Try to get data opportunities. If you don't know what you want to do, it'll get you into different industries. And she was definitely right. Since then, I've climbed to work with charities, universities, governments on data projects, presidential, senatorial campaigns, and of course, places like Google and, and TikTok and other Fortune 50 companies. So Mama knows best. She was really right. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I got into data because I did what my mom told me. <laughs> Works well for me. Yes, Mama knows best. Exactly. Yeah. And I think for the storytelling part, what I see currently, and, and you know, I don't know if your listeners are a lot of brilliant marketers, they've seen this as well. To me, the mirroring of data telling with storytelling is what makes a better salesperson and vice versa, a better data person. You know, it's too often that we see data people in the room showing like, I did this statistical analysis with the counterfactual. And it's just like, okay, 
who cares, you know, uh, for exactly for everyone else. Oh, they can't see the face that you're making because this is recording, but she made the exact face that we have all made when fellow data nerds like myself come in and, and they're just speaking what is ultimately not useful. Um, but coming together with that story, I think makes it so powerful. And I really encourage you know, salespeople and storytellers to bring data in. And I really encourage data people to hone their storytelling skills to make everything much more convincing and actually useful. Because that's who we communicate as humans, right? We don't communicate in numbers. And most of us, we communicate by turning those numbers into stories, sharing fairy tales with each other and fables and things like that. Yeah. And, and too often I see data analysts come into a room and they're like, look at this cool thing I made. And they just want to talk about it. And they, they're like, look at me. And it's just so boring to everyone else. So I really didn't want to be like that. And I, I took lessons on storytelling and have watched my marketing counterparts and have really learned so much for them that I think has made me an overall more interesting person and a more successful one. And actually, for people who want to get started as TikTok creators, whether it's brands who want to get started, individuals, one of the keys to success there, in my experience, is to tell stories, not to come on and say, I'm a business owner and here, buy my products, but mm-hmm. telling a story about how your products or services change lives or entertain people. So I know that's one thing that I've seen as a user of TikTok that works really well. What advice would you have for brands who are thinking about getting started on TikTok and not quite sure where to start? So for big legacy brands, think, you know, brands that you and your mom have used, the really big sort of conglomerate makeup brands, L'Oreal, et cetera. I would tell them to work with creators, people who are on the platform and do not work for the company. They can post ads that are clear that they're paid, but those people just know how to do it. And let's be honest, there's a lot of distrust with big legacy brands. And I think that creators who are on the platform have this inherent trust. And so I would recommend working with them. And you do run the risk when you send them products that they might say, don't use this. But that's why they're so trustworthy. Um, For smaller brands, I would say, if you have not spent time on TikTok or other entertainment platforms before, I would say sort of the opposite of listen to your elders. I would say get out of the way and don't give this tight brief of it must be 15 seconds and it must cover this topic. And don't you mention that other company or this skin ingredient? Like, no, let them drive you. They know how to do this better. So either trust your elders or trust your youngers, depending on what (laughs) position you're coming in from. And I would imagine one of the big topics you work on being a sales and data leader at TikTok is measurement. And of course, measurement is a big challenge across all kinds of media, not just digital media and not just paid ads. And so I'm curious, you know, what's new with the measurement solutions at TikTok and what are you really working on in that area these days? That's a really good question. So so TikTok is younger than Google and, and Facebook, who we see as our top competitors, right? And so five or six years ago, incrementality became the big thing going on in the, in the ad measurement world. Like someone searches for Nike shoes, they click on the ad, they buy it. Were they going to buy those shoes anyway? Or was it because of the ad? And we're just now coming out with those solutions. So we're playing catch up. But in addition to that, 
the whole industry right now is adapting to privacy changes. You know, we saw iOS 14, et cetera. There's going to be changes with Chrome. So anything like conversion lifts and also making sure that users understand how the data is used, what data is used, how they can control it is something that I think TikTok is doing really well because we haven't been around long enough to have some of the old bad habits. So really building from the ground up is a bit different at TikTok. And it makes it really fun. Honestly, I had a great time when we were figuring this out at Google. It was fascinating. And I still use a lot of Google's products for measurement. In TikTok, for example, they have their Geo Experiments tool is public, but we're all adapting going forward. And it's been fun to compare some of our new solutions. And you bring up a great point that you can't look at it in a vacuum, right? The effect of a TikTok ad campaign can be felt in brand searches and your organic search appearance and your organic TikTok and people engaging with your Instagram page and things like that. Absolutely. You remind me. It is so funny to me that for about 17 years, we all looked at last click attribution like it was a given. You know, and honestly, it was completely arbitrary. It just easily could have gone with first click. And honestly, I don't know this to be true at all. But my guess is that if Google had been a top of the funnel platform instead of search, which is normally bottom of the funnel, they probably would have gone with first click. And that would have been industry standard. And so now I love telling marketers, okay, you ate an entire box of pizza. Was it that last bite that made you fool? <laughs> you know, or did the several Ooh. slices, right? Like, or was it yeah. the several slices before? Did they have something to do with it? And so I think data-driven attribution is just such a better choice. And I'm loving how many companies are starting to realize that. And I also love that people are getting out of their own way. And what I mean by that is before, you know, when you started to think about smarter ways of doing attribution, I feel like a lot of marketers were like, hold on, you're telling me that the way that I validated my budgets for the last 15 years has been wrong? <laughs> like a natural reaction. Who the heck are you? <laughs> yeah, like rude. And now I think it's more like, okay, well, now we have more tools and we can do even better. And it's not what we did before was wrong. It was the best option that we had. And so I love seeing that shift. And also as a, as a millennial, I just got to say, I love seeing Gen Z come and take over and they come and they correct me all their time. They're like, wait, why are you making this assumption? And then when I go to explain it to them, I'm like, oh, because I was trained this way and it was the only solution back then. <laughs> so it's been really helpful to have them. Absolutely. And of course, now, you know, you mentioned Google kind of got us all used to last click attribution. And now Google is automatically switching conversions in Google ads over to data-driven attribution mm -hmm. by default. So definitely trying to push people along on that train as well. Yeah. And like the, I honestly, I do think it's better for everyone. And the cynic in me is like, oh, well, they're investing more in YouTube and display, which is more mid-funnel. So it makes sense for them as well. But honestly, what I love about Google is I don't think they make any changes that aren't actually better for the user. But I think that they find ways that it's better for them as well. But I really do think that they're doing a better service to the user. I agree. But of course, you know, we're both ex-Googlers here. So we have to admit we're probably <laughs> a little drunk on the Kool-Aid still. <laughs> it's so good. How, do, how would you not like the Kool-Aid? It's delicious Kool-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's right. We were there at the exact same time. That's so funny. It is. It's a fun coincidence. And so you're a sales and data leader at TikTok now, but that's not the only thing you do. You know, you're also very involved in politics and have been for a few years now. So how mm-hmm. did your political involvement really get started? So when I was 25, and this is totally embarrassing, and to any young women listening, just know that I'm totally ashamed by this. So don't be like me. But when I was 25, I was just starting out at Google and I was so excited to go to work every day. And I had this boyfriend who was never excited to go to work. And he told me that the only way that he would be excited, like someone that wanted to wake up early and go in, would be if he worked in progressive politics. And so I started looking into opportunities to get into them. And I'd always been a progressive and interested in politics, but I started showing up at meetups, you know, for Democrats, for progressives and liberals. And I started sending LinkedIn messages saying, hey, I know someone in PR who could help you with this. I know data. I could help you do this. And they started getting back to me. And my boyfriend at the time rolled his eyes and said it was really silly of me to spend time going to these events. And one of the people that I messaged invited me to an event in DC and I used Google Trends and came up with a story and I impressed a few people and it absolutely changed my life. From there, I got opportunities to help the Hillary campaign. Since then, I've been on congressional senatorial campaigns and ended up as a senior advisor on the Harris presidential campaign in 2020. And when she dropped out of the race in December of 2020, I was kind of like, oh man, I don't know what to do with myself right now. There's still like 10 months left of this election cycle or something like that. And uh, or excuse me, she dropped out in 2019, not 2020. There's still 10 months left. And I was talking to one of the women who I had met at one of these events. And she had me volunteer for certain Democrats to call donors and explain why Democrats need to invest in data and how much money they'd need to do it. And someone said, hey, you explain that really well. I work in a TV industry. Would you explain polling to someone on TV? And my very first time, we do the polling segment. Quick, easy, it's math. They ask me to stay on for the next one. So I'm thinking, okay, there's just more math. That's like my comfort zone. Let's go. And a senator, I think his name is David Allen Bratt, or excuse me, not a senator. He was a former congressman. And I don't know if anyone has heard of the Liberty Scale, but it's the Tea Party's grading system. And he and Jim Jordan were, I think, the only two members of Congress ever to get a perfect score. So really, really conservative. And he came on screaming what I would classify as conspiracy theories. And apparently our argument with each other was interesting. And from there, I started being the liberal who showed up on the really conservative networks like OAN and Newsmax. And from there, I started being the liberal on Fox News. So it's been quite a ride. And and honestly, I love it. It's been a ton of fun. And I've learned so much. Really, I really have. And created your own opportunities. I mean, you joke kind of, it started with a boy, started from a crush, but really evolved (laughs) beyond that to the point where you said, you know, this is something I'm passionate about. This is something I want to do. And you went out there and pitched your capabilities and kind of developed this brand for yourself. 
Thank you. Also, yeah, the boy lost the girl and the opportunity. So, you know, it worked out. <laughs> That's okay. That actually similar in when I was in university, I had a crush on a boy who worked at the school paper. So I got involved in the school paper to spend more time with him. And the crush did not last, but my love of journalism did. And I actually started my career as a journalist. And I mean, here I am today. So you never know where those little crushes may lead you. I love that. I love that so much. And so you mentioned that you're often representing the liberal point of view in a room full of Mm -hmm. conservatives and that something you really value is healthy debate. And so in your role now as a people manager, how do you foster healthy debate within your team? Oh, I love that question. I really believe in radical transparency. I also think that, to be honest with you, for someone in sales, I'm pretty daft. I'm not good at reading between the lines. I don't, I'm not good at picking up subtle like vibe shifts in the room the way that I see people in the sales and marketing tend to be awesome at. And so I always just speak really bluntly to my team and I ask them to do the same. And so, for example, if I get negative feedback on someone, I'm going to come and tell you word for word. I'm not going to wrap it in a bow. But I'm going to come at it in a place say, hey, I'm not saying this is true, but this is the narrative that's going on right now. Let's talk about how we can address it. And honestly, just coming from a place of kindness, I think is one better for me because I'm not good with subtle. And just creating that culture has, I think, created a lot of psychological safety. You know, I remember when we were at Google, they would, they would say that all the time. But I think since becoming a manager, I fully have embraced it and understand why it's so important to, you know, honestly, to have a happy, productive team, you need that psychological safety. And for me, being really just honest from a place of I care about you has helped me get there. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. 
Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And for those who may not be familiar with this term, how would you explain, like, what is psychological safety? How do you create that in your team? Oh, man. I used to hate when Googlers use these terms that were inside Googler, Google, and I am so one of those people. So psychological safety is not being afraid to speak up a different opinion, to say yes and in a meeting and disagree with someone and have the trust in others that you're coming from a good place. And it's good to bring your different opinions. That's how we reach a conclusive decision with as much information as possible. And it's no harm, no foul. Not only does it bring more ideas to the table, it makes people more engaged at work. It makes people feel more ownership. And frankly, it makes your teams a lot happier and closer. And so you're someone who's really, it sounds like, felt a lot of psychological safety at work, been able to bring your whole self to work and pursue, you know, really vocally expressing your political opinions and building out that side of you and your brand alongside, you know, your work in data storytelling. So what advice would you have to other marketers, perhaps a bit earlier in their career than you are, who are maybe having trouble kind of balancing their political beliefs at work, their personal values at work? What advice would you have for them? Honestly, my advice is to remember that no one is spending a lot of time thinking about you. I have been called aggressive at work before when I was on a team where I was the only woman. And as a younger person, I crumbled. I just crumbled. You know, I, frankly, I was better at this job than some of the men above me were. And I came up with new ideas and I was called aggressive. I was once called an aggressive B word by HR. And I crumbled. This was not a Google but I crumpled and I thought, oh my God, they think so awful of me. And then one day it just dawned on me that no one's really thinking about me, you know, after the conversation, the way that I might be crumbling. And I get asked a lot when I go on Fox, which tends to lean conservative. And I'm like this progressive five foot one woman. And how do I handle that? And yeah, when I sign off Fox, I do get, you know, Instagram and TikTok comments, but then, you know, an hour later they stop. And I don't think that anyone's really thinking about me. And to me, that is liberating and has allowed me to, without hesitation, bring ideas and has made me just so much more impactful. So my advice to you is care a little less speak about how people think about you because no one's really spending that much time thinking about you anyway. They're too wrapped up in their own crap to be focused on yours. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I hope that's not discouraging. I hope you take it as I take it and just find it liberating. But yeah, no one's really spending that much time thinking about you. <laughs> 
<laughs> and you've also, you know, built a personal brand for yourself. And of course, you've worked at great companies. You're a you. commentator. You have other hobbies and interests as well. But there's definitely this brand, like Sarah Norman is a data storyteller, even describing yourself that way in your bio. And I would imagine that your personal brand is something that has evolved over time. You probably didn't wake up one morning and say, I've got it. This is how I'm going to define myself. <laughs> I would love to hear a bit more of your story about how you have developed your own personal brand, you know, as a marketer and a storyteller. So when I work on projects, I always like to think, why me? Like, why should it be me? So it started out as, hey, I'm good at data and I'm interested in this. And then I noticed, you know, for example, joining with the Harris campaign, I started out as an unpaid volunteer and then moved up to senior advisor to digital. And it became more, okay, so why am I doing this? What do I want out of it? What do I bring to, okay, but now what is making me rise quickly? And I think for me, it was, I was a data nerd who could bring a story into it and actually make it impactful. And sort of continuing that circular loop of why me? Why do I want it? What do I bring? And now that I'm here, what has worked well? And for me, the best description is a data storyteller. It can be both left and right brain. And I think that's pretty rare. And I promise to anyone listening, whether it's a data storyteller, you are multiple things. So I think that at least I was raised thinking, oh, it's a linear path. Like, you know, you go up this ladder and I really enjoyed moving horizontally back and forth. And then I rise up and back and forth. And it's made me a well-rounded person. And particularly for people that were raised like me to think, you pick a path early and you rise up. It's sort of like, why are you wasting time? But honestly, it was my experience that told me the story of what I am rather than planning out. So I just encourage you to try everything and, and everything that you can. As, know enough to be dangerous with your counterpart teams. And I think that from there, what you really enjoy and what you really deliver on will become your personal brand. Know enough to be dangerous. I like that. But it almost sounds like <laughs> your experience, your varied experiences are the data. And then after the fact, you've kind of woven a story out of that, which fits your story. Very meta right there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and so as someone who loves data and storytelling as much as you do, are there any trends in the data analytics space that are really interesting to you right now. We talked earlier a bit about measurement and attribution, the changes we've seen there. Any other kind of trends in your industry that you're really excited by? You know, I am most excited about how accurate we are at predicting the future. So there's some creepy ones. Like I had a friend that a conglomerate knew she was pregnant before she did, right? A little big brothery kind of, kind of shocks you. But I'm excited of our ability to predict the future can help close the inequalities that we have. So for example, we can use Google searches to uh, for back pain to figure out, oh, where is the next opioid epidemic? Let's send resources there now. We can start to bridge some of those gaps, which is far too vast. But by being able to see the future, we can start to bridge those gaps, not just in healthcare. For example, we can look at data on birth rates, where companies and universities are opening up 
to figure out where, and, and global warming data, to figure out where we should build homeless shelters over the next 20 years, because by the time we need them, it's too late. And for me, that is the difference of modern data. So 100 years ago, yeah, we had some data. We knew where you lived, your birth certificate, whatever. Now we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of data points on you. And that combined with our ability to use that to predict the future, I think can really be a game changer for humanity. Honestly, I know I'm. this sounds so silly at face value, but I think data in the distant future from now, data is going to be seen as part of human evolution, the way fire and tools were. You know, we're using it every day to make our lives better and longer. And I think that data is currently driving a lot of cultural shifts and we can harness it to close some of those inequalities that are far too great. We absolutely can. And I agree with you. Very excited about the promise of data and its capabilities for improving our lives. But of course, there's a large contingent of people, maybe they're not marketers, who are really concerned about the flip side to that, you know, privacy rights and who should gain access to data and how it's handled. And so how do you respond to people who hear about this vision and think like, but my privacy, I don't want companies to know about me. I don't want Target yeah. to know that I'm pregnant before I am. You know, how do you respond to that hesitation and, and fear that many people have about data? So I've evolved a lot on that. When I first started in the industry and people were freaking out that, you know, you search for shoes and then all of a sudden Nike ads were following you around the internet. I thought that they just didn't understand and it wasn't malicious. So calm down. It's better for you. It's better for the advertiser to have targeted ads. Like I'd rather see an ad for Sephora than for cars and Viagra, right? Like it's just not relevant to me as a woman living in New York City. I don't need Viagra and cars. But now I'm much more sensitive to it. I am not sure if you're following what's going on with the social credit score in China, but they're they're working on a credit score for their citizens, or not a credit score, excuse me, a social credit score that takes into account things like what you've posted on social media. Has it been too political? Where do your family members live? If you marry an American, your social credit score could go down. And this actually matters because if you have a good social credit score, your kids are more likely to get into good universities. If you have a bad social credit score, you may be stopped from leaving the country. You may be stopped from opening a business. There are consequences to this. And that to me is too far. You know, that's, that's terrifying. And that is both an example of how powerful data could be and an example of why it needs to be regulated. Any tool that powerful needs to be regulated, both by our public leaders and by the companies who harness it. And I do have to say, I want to be clear, I do not think data is big brother. It is not the boogeyman, but I am now much more sensitive to people's feelings about about privacy because in rare cases, while data has been overwhelmingly positive, there are cases that do terrify me as well. So what I tell people is, you're right, there does need to be regulation. If you are someone who understands STEM, I highly encourage you to consider running for office because not enough of our leaders understand it. They just think it's the boogeyman and they don't know how to wrangle the boogeyman. And separately, if you are capable, I beg you to teach data literacy to your kids, teach them in schools, volunteer. 
build those programs because without the basic understanding of data analysis and also data privacy, you're more easily manipulated. You are, you know? And so I really think that for anyone listening to this, if you're a marketing leader, you're a data leader, right? Like you have to use so much data, you understand it. You are dangerous enough in data to recognize when you're being BSed. You know, I bet if someone comes into one of your meetings and presents you a growth chart where the line is really thickened so that the trends are smoothed out, I bet you would raise an eyebrow, right? Most people don't have that skill, don't have that education. And so I do think that us as data leaders have the ability and responsibility to teach our kids just the basic understandings of data and privacy. That was probably a much longer answer than you No, but it's for. great <laughs> advice, especially as a parent to a oh. four-year-old. It's something I'm already thinking about. You know, she goes off on YouTube on her own, and I want to make sure she understands what she's watching. <laughs> oh, I didn't know you had a four-year-old. Yeah, it's especially, I'm not a parent, but having, I have a four-year-old niece, and I watch her go on things, and she doesn't even need me to, like, help her do it on my phone. I don't understand. She doesn't even read yet, but somehow can navigate YouTube. And it is a little scary. I I think that's another thing, like getting older and like fearing for the next generation is definitely part of it. But I do want to remind people, I think there's two big differences between the non-scary data privacy cases and the scary one. One, when it's aggregated data, I'm much more comfortable. You know, this conglomerate, if, if they don't know that this is my friend who's pregnant, I'm much more comfortable with that. And also I do want to pose this question to the audience. Are we more comfortable with the way that we use data in North America? Because the power is really held with in large companies versus in China, it's held by a government. So for some reason, I think I don't know Canadian culture as as well. I'm an ignorant American down here. But at least in US culture, we, we tend to have trust in these conglomerates more than we do in government. And I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I do think that we have to think about why are we so much more comfortable when it comes to a big company? I am, and I have put more reasons behind it. I think we understand a company's motivations. They want money. They don't care about you as an individual. They're going to aggregate your data, right? That makes me comfortable. Fine. When it's a government, that gets more tricky. And so I've come to that answer for myself, but I do encourage you to to think about that question. Yeah, I wouldn't say we are as individualistic kind of north of border as you are down there. We probably do have a bit more trust in our government. And as well, we don't have such a polarizing political system here. You know, at any given time in the wow, US, right? Like, like 50% of the country didn't vote for the president. We have, I'm not going to say a perfect yeah. system in Canada, but more political variety and different flavors and different opportunity for debate beyond the two-party system. That sounds lovely. <laughs> well, we've Can got our problems too. <laughs> but one more thing I have to ask before we let you go for today. So how do you stay up to date on what's going on in the industry? Do you have any favorite news sources or podcasts or how do you stay fresh? <laughs> oh, I love that question. Honestly, I read everything. I love eMarketer. I love podcasts. I'm blanking on the name, but there's a podcast I listen to that's all CMOs. I bet you know it. But honestly, (laughs) I recently have been following a bunch of subreddits on marketing news. And I sometimes find news on TikTok before I 
no, but TikTok has come out of things and I work there and I'm working on these products. So honestly, I have no judgment to where people get their sources. I should be asking you. (laughs) (laughs) I find out a lot of things. I found out the queen died from TikTok before anywhere else. It's a great news source. But whenever I hear something that I'm like, that's amazing news or like, wow, I can't believe that's true. I have to go Google it to make sure it's not someone just trying to rack up the views for something sensational. Oh, I absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much to Sarah Norman for joining us here today on Marketing News Canada. I'm your host, Jill Saskin-Gales, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio thanks to our producer, Chris Penner, and editors, Travis Jeffers and The Podfather. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.